the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to do so with our good friend Sam Stone. Follow him on Twitter at SamThePaul, P-O-L. He is a political consultant and dear friend to this show. Sam, how are you today? Happy uh, happy Thursday. Seth, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. What trouble are you getting in this week? You're always getting into some kind of trouble. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm actually looking at, at different things with uh, some opportunities to do work in New Hampshire, which I've never actually done for more than a few days at a time. And New Hampshire in the fall is lovely. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, hey, that is interesting. OK, good. Uh, you'll keep us posted as appropriate, I hope. Uh, of course. I um, you, you know what I was just discussing with young David, my producer, um, and we'll get to some politics in a minute. And we'll be get to some interesting literature stuff, too. But I was just discussing with all our food reviews that we like doing with you. I don't think we've ever actually just done specifically pizza. And what made me think of it was a bad joke of an article in The Washington Post uh, on the oh, best pizza in America. You agree with me, right? They have a best yeah. pizza in America. Big, big, big. I mean, this is this is interesting about the Washington Post. No, nothing, nothing about the Hunter Biden scandals. Nothing about anything at the Department of Justice. But they do have a hugely long article on pizza and the best pizza. And they even, I mean, they spent time on this. Memos were written. Meetings were held. They have drop downs for the best pizza in your state, best best style. I mean, they they when they, when they want to dig into something, they dig in, and uh, they did it with pizza. Uh, of course, I looked at what they were doing in Arizona, and of course, they got everything wrong as far as I'm concerned. Uh, happy to take your thoughts on it and happy to hear from you about what pizza joints you do recommend. Well, yes, they're totally wrong. I mean, I mean, it's literally and, – and having traveled a bunch, yeah, like I think they're wrong all over the place. It's I mean, typical it's Washington Post. Just assume yeah. it's bad fact. Oh, it's it's terrible. It's it's terrible, and I am not a fan at all of almost anything they listed. Yeah. Uh, let's talk here about Yo Pauly's. Okay. Little little place tucked away in the uh, up by, uh, uh, let's see, Scottsdale and Shea, basically, right? Okay. Um, or or uh, 90th Street in the in the 101, yeah. if you will, up there, mm-hmm. and. It is fantastic. Real New York style pizza. Okay. And I'm picky on New York style. The crust has to be right. The cheese has to be right. They get it right. I some of these suggestions are just ridiculous. Yeah. And you know they're always gonna give attention to and national attention to the one place that always gets written up in Arizona. And uh by the way, I think it's never I, I don't think it's any good. I, we don't have to say names, everyone knows what we're talking about. I, I, no, I have it, I have tried it. Like you ever keep going back to something because people say you got to try it, maybe with a TV show or even a restaurant. I have tried and tried and tried, and I can't get myself to like it. 
Seth, I, I don't want to. Yeah, I'm with you, and I'm not going to say the name either. Although I think almost everyone can figure. We this all know out what we're talking because, about. Yeah. Yeah. We. I, I like the person who has sure. the restaurant a great deal, sure. and I think they've done some brilliant stuff. Yeah. And their pizza is not. One it's of not. Them. Yeah. I pizza just isn't it. it. Yeah. I know. I, I, I just don't get it. This You're is talking why I about like somebody it. does like this incredible stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And this this pizza joint always gets the love from all these national yeah. places, and I'm like. You? I need their PR firm. I, yeah, no, absolutely, I do, and like, I, I, I just, I do not even come close to understanding. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. Uh, the team here was working over the weekend, and so the management bought them pizza from a place that styles itself. Again, we won't use names, but styles itself. Everyone will know what it is uh, as a Chicago, the Chicago pizza in town. And yeah. I got to tell you, I've tried that about five times. You know what I think it is? It's not so much pizza, Sam, as tomato soup with a little bread crust. That's an accurate description. It's that's it's like. Do you remember at restaurants you could get you could get a soup in like a bread bowl? That's basically what they're doing with a very shallow bowl. That's basic. You know what I'm talking. That's what they're doing. Yeah. You're so spot on. Now, young David, who has an unrefined palate, he likes it. I feel compelled to speak on this matter. Feel free. You'll just be wrong. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, you're wrong, but go ahead. Yeah, say your piece. Uh, No soup that I've ever had has pepperoni in it or nice Italian sausage. Italian wedding soup, any kinds of Italian minestrone soup. Yeah, I mean, the premise is just wrong. What kind of soup has mozzarella cheese in it? Oh, my God. Sam, this is what I'm dealing with. I, I literally am not sure what soup has mozzarella cheese in it, but that's literally irrelevant to this discussion. Totally. They have made a soup, and they put yeah. it on a shallow bread bowl. That's what they've done. Um, it's it's yeah. not my thing. No. So you like Yopalis. I'll tell you, you know, some of the best New York pizza, they're not fancy joints. Uh, I like a place up on 12th and Glendale called Pat's. And um, you and I also agree. I think we agree. I, I'm actually curious. I want to make sure I understand you're right. You texted me something about Pizza Hut in the 80s versus the 90s. I have very fond memories of Pizza Hut in the 80s. Going out to Pizza Hut was like when you, it was your birthday and you could kind of pick a restaurant in my house. I, I chose pizza. It was a fun and good time, and something happened there. It was not merely fun and good. So this all started when I didn't see if it was you or David. It wasn't me. The, Trust me, it wasn't Okay, me. David sent the Trump ad, Trump and Ivana Trump for Pizza Hut, right, in circa 95. Here's the thing. Pizza Hut died circa 1990. The corpse is just walking around yes. zombified. Yes. <laughs> um, look, Domino's killed them. Yeah. They, they dominated the market, and so Pizza Hut tried to be like Domino's. Yeah. And Domino's is garbage, <laughs> and so Pizza Hut is now garbage. <laughs> and I'm probably insulting our sponsors That's right, right now. I mean, program. you know, I mean, it's a hard time in the economy. Everyone's taking <laughs> hits. <laughs> okay, you're but, just, you're but just putting your point. finger on the on the scale. That's okay. Keep yeah, look, pre 1990, you're spot on. Pizza Hut was fantastic. Remember yeah. how crispy the bottom of that? Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Oh my goodness, yeah, it, it was fantastic. It was wonderful. All right. Uh, did you want to weigh in on that, David Dahl? No, I can't say I experienced 1980s Pizza Hut, but I experienced late 1990s and early 2000s Pizza Hut. Yeah, I didn't think Domino's was as bad as, as any. <laughs> the last time I was, I got in real trouble with my mom, Sam. I got in real trouble. 
was I forget what dinner she had made, and she didn't cook much. She's passed, God bless her. And uh, she she wasn't. Uh, let's just say the food in my house was uneven. And she, I think she made some kind of eggplant parmesan thing for dinner one night. And uh, if you want to get in trouble with your mom, you know what to do. Do what I did. Uh, I ordered a Domino's pizza. <laughs> last, not the last time she got mad at me, but the last time she got mad at me in high school. <laughs> Listen, that, that's the one where you just have to be like, hey, mom, I'm going out to the corner store and hit McDonald's. Yeah, no, it's... Like, uh, I, but it gave me the opportunity to go see a movie, too. She kicked me out of the house for the night, so I went and saw a movie. I think it was The Temple of Doom. I'm not sure. Um, by the way, there, let, me, let, uh, yeah, let, me, let me make an interesting uh, sociological point and political point with you about The Washington Post. So I, I didn't know there was a phrase for this. I learned it about a month ago. Sam, you'll like this. Maybe you already know the phrase. You've been written about in the newspaper, and you have read newspapers where you know a lot about the issue you're reading about. And in both cases, oft will be the time, more often than not will be the time, where you're reading something that's just, they get it wrong. They just get it wrong. Something simple, something big, something mediocre. They just get it wrong, right? You've had this experience innumerable times, I'm sure, right? Yes, Okay. absolutely. All right, so there's this phenomenon, but you read and maybe flip the five or six pages, and then you read another story and you kind of take it seriously. I don't know whether about Russia or Ukraine or the economy in New Hampshire, just any other issue. And, and that's, that's, that's a fallacy. It's a fallacy because if they're getting the stuff about which you know wrong, why should we think that on anything else they have any more credibility? There's a phrase for it. It's called Gelman amnesia, and it was written up by Michael Crichton. I didn't know there was a phrase for it until about uh, as I say, a couple, of, maybe a month or two ago. Isn't that interesting? It's something everyone needs to keep in mind. And I was reminded of it when I saw how wrong the Washington Post got the pizza story. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I, I mean, you know, what's funny about their list and what makes the the point you were just making so so poignant, quite frankly, um, is how much of of their list can be derived from just the big names on social media. Totally true. Totally true. Right. Rather conventional, than conventional, cases, yeah. conventional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really like someone took, uh, you know, a crowdsourced list and didn't do any other homework. Right. And that's really what the Washington Post does, except that their crowd uh, more often than not happens to be the U.S. intelligence apparatus. Yeah, that's really a really good point. They, it's almost as if they have an F7 macro they just push on any story about Republicans where you can expect to seem to say – let me take a quick break. We'll pick up on this. It's something about media bias. Sam and I will talk more about in a moment. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Sam Stone is my guest. I should have mentioned he's also the host of his own radio show, heard right here on Saturday afternoons at 3 p.m., Breaking Battlegrounds. We can talk about that, too, in a few moments. But we were talking about media bias and got there kind of in an interesting way from food in the Washington Post. Sam, you're right. It's 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 when they did this pizza story, very clearly they they didn't do a heavy lift. They just I, this looks like it was all done by keyboard warriors that just searched for you know the ones with the most ads or something. But you know, they yeah, have this is clearly yeah. not yeah, go field ahead. research. Right. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And that is essentially the problem with what has become of the Washington Post right. in general. Right. By the way, the field research wouldn't have been hard. All they had would have had to have done is call you or me. <laughs> hey, look, 
if they want to send me a few dollars on a Yelp card or something, I will take on this assignment. I bet you'd do it for free pizza. I, I would do it for free pizza. Because yeah. you would help them with their accuracy. You'd be doing a public service. But the point being, they have this same tendency when they write about conservatives and Republicans. I almost want to issue a challenge, you know, the laws of radio, so I can't really do it without going through legal and all this. But I almost want to issue a challenge and a competition to the audience to find me one story in the Washington Post or the New York Times, one, about Republicans or conservatives. Let's find the word, Sam. We can do it. That wouldn't have the word white in it. It won't have the word extreme in it. It, I mean, they have these F7 macros. Every time they write about our movement or our party, you're always going to see the same things said about us all yes. the time. White, na- uh, you might see nationalist. You'll always see white. You'll always see extreme. You might see radical. Um, it's it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, but I I don't know if I'm missing a few words. Anti democratic. Anti democratic you know. threat. You might see threat. Yeah. Um, threat. That's right there. They, I mean. You know, look, they they are now a mouthpiece for not merely a particular point of view, but as I alluded to earlier, for a very uh, insider government-centric particular point of view. Yeah, yeah. So they're both partisan and system-captured, and it's a terrible, terrible toxic mix. I don't know the phrase. Talk to me about system captured. I need to add that to my vocabulary. Tell me a little bit about system captured. Is it kind of is it just is is it kind of confirmation bias? Is it like that a little bit? Uh, it, it, I would go further. System capture. Yeah, obviously, when you're talking about it, and not outside of journalism, right? Uh, the idea is that you you miss better solutions or uh, better ideas right. or that kind of thing because you've been totally captured by the system that you're in and uh, only the solutions prescribed by that system. A version of groupthink a little bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah, then are then deemed valid, right? Okay. So it's a self-reinforcing loop. And then when you shift that to the intelligence side, you know, you're being captured by a system – which is unknown to 99% of people, including the, the writers at the yeah. Washington Post who are captured by it. In other words, they don't have the insights on what U.S. intelligence is really trying to do at any given time. They're just serving as the mouthpiece for them without knowing that, which, which quite frankly to me makes it worse. Yeah, I think the banner explanation of this is summed up in – now overused example, but it's overused because it's such a good example of the film critic for the New York Times in 1972, Pauline Kael, who said, I don't know how Nixon won 49 states. I don't know anyone who voted for him. That's a pretty good example of what we're talking about, right? It, it is with the difference that the person who is telling somebody from The Washington Post, I don't know, for instance, how Trump could, you yeah. know, could ever win or right. whatever it is. Um, is doing so from a position of authority, which is both hidden yeah. and significant. Got it. Got it. Do you remember after the Trump election, by the way, in 2016, the public letter from, I think it was Bill Keller at the time, uh, the executive editor of the New York Times, saying we're going to make an effort to do better and represent these voices we missed? Do you remember that? I do. Didn't I do. happen. No. No. Well, I mean, look, they, I think they actually did try to tack in that direction a little bit, but it got entirely stomped out immediately by their <laughs> their newsroom. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
You know, the, the problem is that these journalists, and, and I dealt with a lot of them on a personal basis, sure. but they're coming out of school believing that their job is to promote a particular point of view, right. not report the news. And, you know, I, I don't really care. Like, I, look, I think Lori Roberts is ridiculous, right? But I, do I really care what Lori Roberts writes? Not generally, I don't, because, you know, frankly, she, that's her opinion. I don't care. But when you take someone with her point of view, for instance, put them in the newsroom, and they write a news piece, a theoretical news piece, from that same slanted perspective, then I do care. And it's something very, very different. And that's what we're seeing in all these newsrooms. Look at the way that, you know, there have been newsroom revolts yeah. at any attempt at, at some sort of balance. Yeah, if Tom Cotton writes an op-ed, we get mass resignations, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, yeah. one of the things, like, here locally at Arizona Republic, right, yeah. people kind of missed this timeline, and it never got out, but I always had my suspicions that the case was— they had put out a call for conservatives from Arizona I remember who wanted it. to become regular conservatives. I remember it, yep. And a few months later, everyone at the top of that newsroom was fired, and there was a shift that put Elvia Diaz, who's a far-left radical, in charge of the newsroom. So interesting. So, so interesting. I would bet those two were connected. Well, there's. let's stay with the newspapers for just one more moment, if we can, because there is something going on here where— you're right. So you expect journalists to know a little something. And that right there is the other fallacy. Once upon a time in the heyday, even when the news was biased, I'm talking, I mean, people knew the news was biased in the 60s and 70s. They knew it. But the reporting was a little more fair and a little more in-depth and a lot better. And it's because those journalists, those reporters went to college and learned things. They learned history from good history professors. They learned literature from good literature professors. They had an understanding of politics from good, whatever they called it back then, poli-sci, government, it depended on the school you went to. That doesn't happen anymore today. You, you now have a cadre of journalists, most of them under the age of 35, if that old, and they're not required to take these courses. And if they do take these courses, they're taught by crappy teachers who don't know much about the topic in the first place. What they get is journalism degrees which teaches them about commas. And I was yes. astounded to learn, even at Cronkite, I asked, um, who, was the, who was the student uh, journalist that got fired? Rayleigh Klein, was that her name? The, uh, yeah. Does that name ring familiar? She got fired yeah, from the her. radio show because she linked to yep. a New York Post story, Heaven Forfend, which turned uh, out to be an accurate. accurate story. I, I asked her, I interviewed the, her. Yeah. yeah, I interviewed her and I asked her, do they have any courses at Cronkite on opinion journalism? Any opinion journalist, she said no. And I was at first shocked. And then I realized because they don't need to. Because no, they don't need to. They journalists. already all have. Yeah, they don't need to. Well, go back. So, so to add to your point, go back to what Ben Rhodes, who was an Obama official yeah. who, who ran oh, his yeah, mouth yeah, off. Yeah, I yeah, forget yeah. the New Yorker yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who basically just said, look, we can tell these journalists anything That's we right. want to, and they'll right. reprint it because right. they don't know anything. That's they right. They know nothing. He said that about the Iran deal, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. He said they swallowed yeah. hook, line, and sinker what we told them because we, we – they, that's – you nailed it, man. All right, let me take but a quick made, break. Yeah, go ahead. the point broad to the entire yep. campaign and yep. the Obama. It's, it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. You're I, I, such a good – I'm glad you remember that. Sam Stone and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Sam Stone is my guest host of Baking, uh, excuse me, Breaking Battlegrounds. I'll tell you about that Freudian slip in a, in a half a moment. Breaking Battlegrounds heard here every uh, 
Saturday at 3 p.m. Follow him on Twitter at Sam DePaul. He's a consultant in town. Dear friend, I, I I made that Freudian slip, Baking Battlegrounds. Did you, Sam, have as a child, do you remember the Amelia Bedelia books? Does, it, does that ring a bell? It may not have. It, it, probably more uh, for me. So my sister had them. Oh, okay. I mean, I remember yeah. her having them. I, I never read them. So, so this, was the, uh, this was a story. I think Peggy Parrish was the author. Amelia Bedelia was like the housemaid to this family, and she would always get everything wrong because she took everything way too literally. And the mom would always get mad at her. The maid, the you know, the mistress of the whatever, the head of the household, the female would always get mad at her. But she would redeem herself by baking these amazing lemon meringue pies, and and all was forgiven. <laughs> That's why I was thinking of that because young David here, as much as we were making fun of him, appropriately so, uh, for his errancy on uh, food issues earlier, he redeems himself with knowing exactly the kind of music I want. So um, he, he's the Amelia Bedelia of solid. producers. Look, yeah. Great music, le- great lemon meringue pie. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Baking. Yeah. <laughs> you understand why I got that. The, yeah. me- the media thing, you're right. So so there's no distinction. That's one real problem with the media. No more distinction between the op-ed pages and the news stories. There's another. Do you know my old friend? Um, I'm sure you've read him. You may even know him. Uh, Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby. I don't know if you know him or know of his I don't sort. know him personally, yeah. but yes, I've certainly read plenty and plenty yeah. of his stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was telling me when the Boston Globe was being bought out by the New York Times and the new restrictions they were putting on and all this stuff, he said, the thing that offends me the most about it is our efforts here, and it was a good op-ed page. Like, remember when the Washington Post used to have a good op-ed page? They really did. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, they did. They, and they really did. And um, the Boston Globe did. And, and he told me, you know, I've always viewed my job as trying to give the readers a reading experience, and they're taking that away. I loved that phrase. Give the readers yeah. a reading experience, and we just we we just don't have that much anymore. We, it's very hard to find in an editorial or an op-ed page anymore. Really no, hard. and it's it's sad because you can point to the the moment that the New York Times bought the Boston Globe as kind of the end of that paper. Yeah. I mean, it really is is not what it once was. It was once one of the great op-ed pages, maybe the single greatest sports page when Peter Gammons and and all those guys were writing for them. Um, it it was a great paper, and yeah, it was left leaning, right? There, oh yeah, it was left leaning. You're talking about the Post or, or the Globe? The Globe. Uh, the Globe. Yeah, no, it was left leaning, but it was a great paper. Yeah, but it was a great paper. Yes, it was, and it's not anymore. And 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 that was true, kind of, of the Post as well. I mean, this is the op-ed page that gave you Charles Krauthammer. Uh, it gave you George Will back when he was doing good work. I think he's mostly phoning it in these days, but and I don't know how conservative he is anymore. But he won a Pulitzer Prize writing for the Washington Post in the 70s. Uh, Fred Hyatt was their house editorialist. I mean, these they, they, the writing well, was good, and, the, and, they even, and it was even-handed. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and Their guest editorials were the best in the country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that, they really you know, worked to, if there was a technical issue in Congress, yep. or you, know, you would yep. have someone who was deeply versed on it yep. writing an op-ed from each side about that issue to inform yep. voters. That's a great point. Um, you know, they, they really have fallen. They were Oh, fantastic. boy, that brings back a memory. You're so right. Do you remember the 96 welfare debate? You know what they did? Yeah. It was, you know what they did for the, for the reading public? They had that. They did exactly that. 
they went to Daniel Patrick Moynihan to write one side of why wel- the welfare reform legislation was a bad idea, and they went to William J. Bennett to write the counterpoint as to why it was a good idea. Then I remember they uh, that's what you would have wanted. That's what you want. Today, yeah. they wouldn't even go as far right as Daniel Patrick Moynihan for a Democratic perspective, and never mind a conservative perspective. That's the difference. No, that's absolutely difference. not. No, that, and that's the kind of thing they did all the all time. All the time. Exactly right. Let me take one more commercial break. I was taken, I want to do a little culture with you, sort of culture, sort of uh, education. I was really taken by something Barry Weiss did at the Free Press in yielding a page to a 17-year-old homeschool student. Um, about what's what children need. Can I do that with you when we come right back? It's oh, called. You a, bet. It's yeah, called. That a, was, wasn't brilliant. that interesting? A Constitution yeah. for Teenage Happiness. Parents and teenagers will want to listen. Sam Stone and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Sam Stone is my guest, host of Breaking Battlegrounds, heard here every uh, Saturday afternoon at three p.m. Great show. Um, uh, entertaining and intelligent. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Also entertaining and intelligent at Sam the Paul P O L. Uh, Sam, it's kind of back to school time, so I've been doing a lot on education. I was really taken by a piece a seventeen-year-old wrote for the Free Press. Barry Weiss at the Free Press, formerly of the New York Times, left it because she couldn't handle everything we were talking about. Uh, she did a contest for uh, teenagers to write an essay about what um you know what they would recommend to their colleagues uh to their to their peers uh and and that the winner would you know win win the essay being published in the free press so the title of one that was a runner up I kind of love this title why I traded my smartphone for an axe I love everything about that title I think I can imagine which is a great, a great yeah. piece yeah. I've read also Oh you did oh god love god love you then I will yeah. read it if folks are not folks out there, it's a it's a reasonable price. Okay, there is still great journalism in the world. Yep. And when the, when it exists, we need to all be supportive of it. So right. I don't agree on seventy percent, sixty, seventy percent with Barry White. Right. She Same. is more from the left. Yep. But what she does is truly great journalism, and what the FP is doing is great journalism. Pay that price, yep. folks. It's Go worth it. Subscribe, sign up. It is worth it. And you get what Jacoby said, a reading experience. You get yes. a reading experience. So this one 17-year-old, she's a homeschooler. She'll be a senior this year. And uh, it's a great title uh, of her pay- piece, A Constitution for Teenage Happiness. Her advice, I love the first, I loved all of it, but the first one, read old books. Don't you love that? Don't you love that these seven, this 17-year-old is saying, you know, Read old books, the kind of stuff that Alan Bloom was lamenting was disappearing from basically our common parlance, our common core of understanding and knowledge, our lingua franca. I love this idea. Read old books. Even more under that, uh, one of the things she says in in that heading is uh, books that are representative, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a kind of a a code word in in today's education for books that are not written a long time ago by old white people um, and are that are more easily absorbed undermine the main reason to read them yes yes to push readers beyond themselves in uncomfortable and productive i love that worth repeating books that are representative that are more easily Uh, absorbed trigger words undermine the main reason to read them to push readers beyond themselves in uncomfortable and productive ways to have a conversation with a different period, a different time, a different thought process, a different way of thinking, right? That's what this is about, isn't it? 
It is. And then she highlights something else further down in her piece. Where yeah. She's talking about how um, the, the pace, learn from the monks and slow your pace of reading, of writing, of thinking. Yeah, slow it down. And she takes the task, the AP programs in schools, which just runs students very quickly over the surface material they need to pass tests. Right. While she as a homeschooler digs on a subject until she's satisfied her curiosity and feels like she truly understands it. Now, which one of those two is education, Seth? Exactly. I had a tutor who helped me um, with, I think it was, yeah, it was a math tutor when I was uh, in elementary school. And she gave me these exercises that I kind of worked through. And I said, good, right? And she goes, good, but you don't own it yet. I've never forgotten that notion of owning something, owning a piece mm. of knowledge, owning a piece of learning. That's what she's getting at, isn't it? She says, I never move on from a problem or subject before I am ready. I find knowing that I truly understand something thus expands my mind, far more rewarding than the fleeting frisson of being the first to finish. Right? It's so spot on. It's so spot on. And by the way, let's take that and apply that back to the world of journalism. Totally I where I was thinking. About. Yep. 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 Go ahead. If you want to say something more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I just think it's, you know, the the whole thing in journalism used to be it's not about being first. It's about being right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now in the last 15, 20 years, journalism has become about getting it first. And then even when you're proven wrong, standing yep. that ground. Yep. Absolutely true. Um you know, to the to the point that it is. I mean, it's really almost incomprehensible. Yep. I forget which we're talking Washington Post. It was one of their writers. I was was seeing a thing on earlier today, who has been one of the leading people on the Trump Russia collusion. Okay, P tape on all of this stuff. Who's denied the Hunter Biden laptop, and he was challenged uh, in a podcast by a left leaning, you know, the village voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you know, sat down with the village voice, a very left leaning institution out of New York city. And they asked him some questions, you know, what do you say about this now? Because this has been, you know, really debunked. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he's sitting there literally screaming at the interview going, you need to listen to me. Mm. It's not anything like that. Uh, The walls are closing in. Well, it's not that just that I don't even think they see the walls. I mean, I think really I got it first. I own this topic yeah. from my perspective, yeah. and therefore I'm not going to let the facts disabuse me of this position. That's yeah. what this guy was saying. Yeah, I mean, this is where my truth has now entered the newsroom. My truth is what you will get, not the truth. That's that's right. that's how they see it. I mean, that's how they see. It. She had another piece of advice. The 17 year old God lover. I love this. Very. It, very Full of wisdom. For so 17. smart, I'm these a... homeschoolers. You know, when you yeah. do it right, you really produce tremendous guards. Learn how to conduct yourself in public. I mm. love that. You know, Edmund Burke says manners are more important than laws. And we've forgotten that, haven't we? Yes. Yes, we have. You know, and there's so much in society right now that would benefit by people learning how to conduct themselves in public again. And she, I mean, she really is spot on with everything in this piece, folks. And if you're not reading it, you need to go find this and read it for yourself. Um, You know, but there's so much about our current public conduct 
in every facet of life, whether it's these store break-ins and, and the, all the robberies, whether it's the, you know, the subway pushers and all this stuff in New York, whether it's the violence we're seeing around the country, the short tempers, the tantrums on airlines, blah, 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 blah. It's like in 2020, since we were deprived of it for a few months, everyone forgot how to handle themselves in public. Correct. In, in ways that are really accelerating the deterioration of our entire society. That's exactly right. And it gave almost a permission. I, you know, I suppose some of the rioting did that, too, you know, because people were so apologetic and defensive over the rioting and unwilling to denounce it because, you know, Trump. Oh, absolutely. The Ferguson effect. R- right. It, 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 it spread to the rest of society. Anarchy was now tolerable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's it has entered. How many times, folks, have you now been to a store or a restaurant and you see someone just go yeah. ridiculous? Yeah. I mean, just ridiculous yeah. on somebody else, whether yep. it's an employee, yep. whether it's another customer. Yep. And and everyone just stands around and shakes their head. But yet we're not stepping in to nope. do anything about this, nope. you know, and, and the time has come. It's time for people to put their foot down and just say, listen, if you're going to act like, like uh, you know, temper tantrum throwing children, then we're going to treat you that way. Yeah, we need to be adults again and starting with the lessons from this 17-year-old. Sam Stone, love talking to you, brother. I got to run. Thanks for being with us as always. Seth, a pleasure as always. We'll talk soon. This 17-year-old homeschool student, this Constitution for Teenage Happiness that she wrote, you can get it at the free press, thefp.com, thefp.com. Last one, last article in her Constitution, dramatically reduce use of your phone. Be a Constitution for adult happiness, too, not just teenage happiness. She writes, the final key to being a happy teenager, I'd also say adult, is to do away with the, quote, machine for feeling bad, as we call it in my house. Seriously, walk away from your phone. You've seen the statistics. You've read the Jonathan Haidt articles, and you've watched that Netflix documentary with Tristan Harris. You know it's bad for you, but let's make it more concrete. Having a phone in your pocket is like always carrying around a glazed donut that constantly tempts you to snack on it. But if you do, you know it will ruin your appetite. Sure, the phone is a good way for people to get hold of you, just like smearing yourself with blood before you go swimming in shark-infested waters is a good way for sharks to reach you. Now, how appealing is that? Boy, you know, if we had adults that thought like this 17-year-old and if we had more 17-year-olds that thought like this 17-year-old, we'd be a much better society. Uh, The one thing we didn't get into that she did say is, well, and I loved this piece of advice too, Article number two in her Constitution for Happiness. Memorize poetry and learn ancient languages. Yeah, memorization, still a great thing to do, still a great tool. And learning ancient languages, if you have an affinity for it, it's a lot of fun. All right, folks. David Dahl, thank you for everything. Uh, Folks, thank you all. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.